0: this is my show love from london's life coach coming to you directly from london this podcast comes with a warning as it is unapologetically controversial this show hopes to break the silence with the purpose of awareness and discrimination of cultural restraints across the world enjoy i'm gonna let my guest introduce himself and tell you a little bit about what he does
1: Hello, Nina, and thank you very much for having me on your podcast. (laughs) We met on Clubhouse, and it was an absolute delight, and I'm happy to be here. A little bit about myself, I've had an interesting background, and I think you've heard it, many people on Clubhouse have. I was severely abused as a child by an alcoholic father, and I didn't believe in myself, and consequently, back in the 1960s, when I was going to grade school there were teachers who were just horrendous and they would also tell me that I was going to fail. So I conditioned myself not to believe that I could accomplish anything. And this was the way that I I was programmed. And when that happens, you really don't believe that you can get anywhere else. And so I acted out and I was the bad boy. I couldn't act out at home, so I certainly acted out in school. And by doing so, I got in a lot of trouble. And I got uh, straps and all kinds of stuff. In grade seven, something happened to me that really changed things. And I was in a classroom. And at the time, I was starting to like girls. And uh, there was one teacher who um, he announced to the entire classroom that we were going to have a test. And he said, I expect everyone in the classroom to pass, except for you, Nado." I already know you're going to fail. And that hit me so hard. I felt shame and I just felt small. And the students, of course, they were laughing. And I went back home that day and I did something that I'd never done before. I studied. Um, I I didn't know how to study. I'm in grade seven. I didn't know any of the skills on how to study or how to retain any information. Mm. And so I tried my very best. The next week when we wrote that test, I felt pretty good about it. But then I had these competing voices in my head. One was saying, you failed again. And the other one was saying, no, you kind of knew some of that stuff. It was customary in this teacher's class to call the student with the lowest grade to the front of the class to pick up their paper. And I was conditioned to be the first one to jump out of their chair. So out of a hundred... I would maybe get 48, 49. I'd get about half of them right. And so I was the first one to spring out of my chair and take that walk of shame to the front of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And on this occasion, he didn't call my name out first, which was a little bit of a shock. But then again, those competing voices, one saying, you had a few right. And as it turned out, he kept calling name after name after name. And halfway through the class, my, my fellow students were looking at me. My classmates were going, what? <laughs> where, where are you? And I'm looking at myself, you know, kind of like,
0: I don't know. What's going on, yeah.
1: I know. It was crazy. And there were three students left to be called. And in my mind, I was thinking, you did really good, Paul. And then the other voice in my head was saying, oh, no, he's just waiting to embarrass you like you've never been embarrassed before. Mm-hmm. My cousin was one of those uh, three, one of us three, uh, who was not called. And she and the other girl, Giselle, they were always competing for the highest mark in class. We we called them Browners. Okay. And uh, so my cousin, Lee's was called before me. And that left Giselle and I. I was the second last to be called. I had the second highest grade. And that was a moment where I walked and took not the walk of shame, but the walk of pride. And when I picked up my paper, that was a pivotal moment in my life where I started to believe in myself. I had applied myself for the very first time. And I realized that when we do that, we can really change our circumstances and change our life. And for me, it was that moment that I started to build on. And my successes started to build from there. I had sworn after repeating with my father, When I was about seven years old, I was on the ground looking up at him. And the number seven plays a role in my life for some reason. But I had sworn on that day that when I grew up, I was gonna become a policeman so I could arrest my father and people like him. So now in grade seven, I had this pivotal pivotal moment. When I was 17, my father killed himself. Mm. I I joined the police department when I was 21. Seven years later, Mm. I became a detective. And that was the job that I was after ever since I was a boy. I used to make these these detective badges and play with my (laughs) friends. I was a detective. (laughs) So uh, from there, uh, it was a a tremendous career. Um, I became a detective in the Special Victims Unit dealing with uh, victims of uh, sexual assault and child abuse. I was um, fortunate enough to go to the Middle East during the Iraq war as a peacekeeper where I spent a year on mission. Yeah. And uh, I yes, my career was I, I became a hostage negotiator, and my career was one that um, really you could you could look at it as a blockbuster movie. The stories yeah. I've got are amazing, and it's just, I feel like Forrest Gump. You know, like <laughs> I, I find my no, it's I'm not kidding, Nina. I feel like Forrest Gump. I you know, suddenly I'm I'm uh, just uh, probably about five years ago tell you this story I think you'll like this yeah imagine me standing in a crowd of about 9,000 people who are seated in an auditorium and Oprah Winfrey and I are holding hands walking through the auditorium and she's waving and I'm holding hands with Oprah and uh that is a true story and it was remarkable What you don't know about the story is is that I had been asked to be her bodyguard, uh, along with other people, while she was at this event in Toronto, Canada, and uh, I was uh, at the front of the stage were the security because they knew my background and they knew how much experience I had. They asked me if I would accompany her because she had decided to walk through the crowd. And and so I thought, oh, that's a terrible idea. There's 9,000 people in the auditorium, 9,000 people. And all these 9,000 people were told, sit in your chairs and don't get up. Sit in your chairs, and everybody's going, "Mm mm-hmm. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we promise we won't get up. If she comes over to you, she shakes your hand. That's great. But remain seated. Uh Yeah. And so when I found out from the security that they were going to or that she was going to walk through the crowd, they asked me, would you stand by her side? And I said, sure. And there were more than me, of course, there were about three or four of us, but I was directly beside her. And sure enough, we got about halfway into the auditorium. And then everybody started getting up and (sighs) they started coming over and grabbing at her and I'm pushing people away. And she looks at me and she looks at me and she says, Paul, she grabs my hand and she squeezed it so hard and she says, get me back to the stage. (laughs) I turned to her and I said, I got you, Oprah. And so we're walking through this crowd and I'm kind of making way for her to get there safely. Fortunately, the story ends well. She got on stage unharmed, and that's my story about me holding hands with Oprah, which is a true story, <laughs> but you just got a few more details. So there you go. That's,
0: that's actually an amazing story. It reminds me of the Bodyguard film though, you know. with
1: <laughs> Yes, well, um, oh uh, God, uh, Kevin Costner. I love yeah. him as an actor. A lot of people don't, I do. And uh, Whitney Houston, oh God. And I saw the, uh, the actual theatrical performance here in Toronto of that. Loved it, loved it. When I looked at the guy who was playing Kevin Costner's uh, role on stage, I thought yeah. I could do a better job than that. I'm an actor. <laughs> and I thought he did no, a lousy play, exactly. cool, but the whole thing was great.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing story. So when you say that you've um, worked the Middle East, well, I'm very controversial as we've had this conversation. I mm-hmm. am very much about on it, you know, so trying to get the awareness out about honor killings and cultural restraints. Did you see anything there that you didn't agree with and did you find it difficult to remain in your role and not step out of it?
1: My experience in the Middle East was actually quite good uh, other than the fact that I was almost killed but uh, I was really welcomed by uh, most of the people. I was afraid to go because this was 2005 And the the war had had uh, in Iraq had um, been going on for a while. And my job was as a peacekeeper, working in the Jordanian International Police Training Center. Our job was to train Iraqi policemen. So we trained them in criminal investigation, human rights, Mm -hmm. uh, defense, you know, um, finding bombs, disarming bombs, uh, all kinds of stuff. I originally started as an instructor. What I did not like um, in the academy was the way that some of the Iraqi cadets were being treated because they were there. Now, not all of them, but many of them were there because they truly believed that they wanted to defend their country to the best of their ability. Mm -hmm. The problem is that some of them were not there for that purpose. We had uh, terrorists among the cadets because there was no way of vetting the cadets. They, They had They were bringing 3,000 police cadets every eight weeks to be trained. So 3,000 every eight weeks, they would go into different classrooms for two weeks at a time, and -hmm. then they would be repatriated back to their country to defend their country. But because they couldn't be vetted, Iraq was in such desperate need of police officers that they would grab anybody, Mm -hmm. even grab people off the street. So Mm -hmm. we had people who were suffering from mental illness. We had boys that were being grabbed that were underage, clearly 16 years old, as long as they could hold a rifle and they were being sent. And of course, the terrorists were taking this opportunity because it was a paid position. They were giving the Iraqi cadets, I think it was $100 a week, which was big money back then for uh, for the Iraqis. And so they were trained for eight weeks and sent out. So the terrorists were taking advantage of this and infiltrating the academy in, in great numbers. So I was teaching a classroom filled with Sunnis, Shiites, and terrorists. What really offended me and what I was really upset about was that there were good, good men in that crowd, and Mm -hmm. they were all being treated with disrespect by some groups of international instructors. And I won't uh, name who they were, but many of them were being, and not all. Not all from this group were treating them with disrespect, but many of them were angry with them and just treating them like animals. And that really upset me. Mm. As far as the culture, I really uh, truly enjoyed uh, being in the Middle East and um, I felt welcomed. I also, there was a f- about 5% that would treat me as a foreigner, um, an unlike I foreigner. I felt what it was like to be a minority. And, you know, being pushed in a crowd or, you know, ha- being, having someone step in front of you in a line or that kind of stuff. And I realized that, yeah, some people do look down on other people uh, simply because of where they come from or what they may believe in. And that, yeah. that was really tough for me.
0: Can I, I know that you mentioned when we were chatting earlier that you've got a daughter. Um, as I've said many a time on Clubhouse and my Instagram and social media, girls in my culture are often killed at birth. does that make you feel to know that other cultures treat their daughters so badly and that they're not even second-class citizens they're treated as maybe third or fourth class citizens and very invisible to freedom which is what your whole role is about you know you're helping that hostage become free
1: that is very hard. To this day, I hear about the injustices that uh, girls and women uh, suffer in different cultures, and it breaks my heart. It really does. Uh, I I don't understand it. And uh, as much as I try to wrap my head around it, it's just not right. And, And I, what this mentality is all about is just one of male dominance and superiority which is wrong completely wrong we are all equals and i i am one of those people who just absolutely love everyone Mm -hmm. and uh and when i see the injustices and and uh, i hear about the mutilations i hear about the honor killings i hear about all the terrible suffering that because you were born a particular sex, you are a target by some, and made to feel like you are, you don't have a voice, and that you are inferior, and subordinate, and all these things just break my heart, Nina, they really do. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember uh, working on a case, I was working in the polygraph um, division, and uh, I was, I was, My job was really to interrogate uh, all kinds of criminals and to see whether I could determine the truth and whether they were responsible for the acts that they were accused of. But I also worked with a threat assessment officer because I'd done a lot of profiling in the years that I was a a detective. I worked with um, some great profilers and you've seen the TV shows where they go in and they profile everyone and they can tell you who did the crime. I was very good at that. So the threat assessment officer whose job it was was to set to assess the threat, Uh, for example, in a domestic violence case there were a number of questions that uh, the the victim uh, was asked about their partner that would then. Uh, be able to determine the level of threat that was yeah. that was there is it minimal is it medium or is it high risk yeah. and if it's high risk we need to dis- we need to do something we need to hide them we need to do something mm-hmm. and one day the threat assessment officer came in and there was a young woman from jordan who had gone to actually it wasn't the threat assessment I'm going back in in my memory here it was someone from the government who came in and they had heard that I did work in this area. And uh, they came with this file and I got the threat assessment uh, officer involved with me too. And the two of us were given the file to examine to see whether the level of risk was high. And it certainly was. She had met a boy in Jordan that she liked that uh, the family did not approve of. And uh, they made her life difficult and hard. And she, she fled. And she fled to Canada to try to protect herself. And yeah. of course, the family. Uh, I think it was the um, her brother uh, was um, tasked with fi- with finding her, yeah. and from based from the file that I read, and the threat assessment officer concurred with me that the level of risk to this woman was extremely high, and so we reported it to the government to put her into a witness. Uh, sorry, it's almost like a witness protection program, to protect her as much as we possibly could from an honor killing. So yes, i I'm, I'm completely aware of that and uh,
0: yeah that's very interesting that they do that over there because um I've been in I've been in that position twice once with when I left my home as a child, you know at twenty one when I was a young girl and I was escaping the honor killing because they had beaten me uh, but not killed me. but the intention was to take me away to India and kill me there. And then the second time when I left home with my, young, well, my youngest son and we became homeless because we were put into a safe home. But I do feel that I was, I was a high risk case because my former partner tried to kill us by, he'd left, the whole house was full of gas and we'd passed out and it was one of many attempts. So I do understand that, but this level of support in this country is terrible. You know, you're given an emergency accommodation for a couple of nights, And that's it. And the accommodation that we ended up in had, the carpet was drenched in urine and the walls had human feces smeared over them. But it sounds like there's a little bit more support where you are.
1: There is a lot more support where I am, and uh, I, I can't get into the specifics of it. I only know what I was exposed to. But the fact that they approached me because she lived in our jurisdiction, that's the only reason. It's not like I'm an expert in this because I certainly am not. Uh, It's just that she resided at the time in our jurisdiction. And so I was uh, working out of headquarters and I was uh, quite um, good at determining levels of risk and, uh, and profiling and examining cases. And that's why they sought me out. It was almost like a, a courtesy call to the local police department. Yeah, We've all know. seen this in movies. So and, and we just provided the best, uh, the best report that we possibly could in our educated opinion. She yeah, was at yeah. high risk, and they accepted that. They thanked us, and then that was our last involvement in that. But yeah. there's a yeah. particular team, you know that, that do operate out of our country that do that for people.
0: No, that's amazing. I I want to thank you as well for being involved. But going back to your speciality, which is um, saving people, in my that's how I'm going to put it saving people because that's Mm. what you do. So, as a hostage negotiator, have you had a case that really comes to mind where you thought you weren't going to be able to make it happen, and then you did do something to make it happen?
1: Yes. Um, I'll start out by saying that as a hostage negotiator, we've all seen the great movies and some of them are so cool and so accurate. And
0: I, it, oh, really? Really
1: is, it really is like that wow. when, you, when you have a hostage crisis. Now, out of all the cases you, that, that I have worked on, maybe 10% of them were actual hostage takings. The other side of the coin with a hostage negotiator is that they also are a crisis negotiator, people who are in crisis, suicidal. They make up about eight to nine uh, 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 percent, sorry, eight to nine out of 10 of the cases that were called on. So a lot of the negotiations are done with people who are suicidal, who a family member has called and said, you know, so-and-so is going to, uh, you know, kill themselves or, they're with their baby and they're going to kill themselves and their baby. So those are the ones that we went to um, the most. Mm -hmm. And the other 10% were the ones where people were held at gunpoint and a a robbery had gone wrong or a domestic uh, situation, a violent uh, domestic uh, um, battle had gone on and the husband had taken his wife uh, hostage and they didn't know what to do. But going back to my level of success, I'm happy to say, that in every situation, I did not lose anyone. But there was one particular case involving a suicidal man. And he had barricaded himself in in his room. And he had all kinds of things up against the wall. And we were were involved. And I was talking to him. And I also had one of these um, threat assessment uh, people with me. Uh, he was a, a psychologist from the Ontario Provincial Police, and he just loved joining me in in the in the command center. Yeah. And the command center is this great big, um, oh, uh, what do you call it, mobile home that is designed to have different offices, and we could take it anywhere. Okay. And so he once he found out that there was a, a situation involving a person who was in mental distress, mm-hmm. he uh, he said, "I want to come, I want to come." And he was good. So I always loved to have him by my side because he was a, a psychiatrist and he was a real authority. And as I was talking to this young man, he was not connecting with me. I could just tell that there was something that was amiss. And with all the training that you have, one of the things that you must also rely on is your instinct. And your instinct when it talks to you that this is not going well. I in that moment, need to make a decision, a life or death decision sometimes. If it's with a hostage taker, I need to turn to my unit commander and say, things are going to go bad in the next couple of minutes unless you guys breach the place and you do something. You stop this. And we don't want that to ever happen. I don't want to turn around to my incident commander and say, listen, take the shot. Take the shot because if you don't, somebody, is going, somebody else is going to die and an innocent person is going to die. You don't want to do that. Fortunately, that's never come to that. Going back to this man with the mental illness, I just sensed that there was nothing I could do or say that would change the fact that he was going to take his life. So I turned to my incident commander immediately. And I said, you'd better get in there. You'd better get in there within the next minute or two, or he will be dead. And the, uh, the psychologist that was right beside me, he concurred with that. And they did, they, they they took a battering ram and they went into, into the room as quickly as they could, just as he was beginning to slice his wrist. But he, mm-hmm. I think he cut himself a little bit, but they stopped it and they were able to stop it in time. So fortunately, I can say that um, I've lost no one. And that's a good feeling because I know that if that would have happened, mm-hmm. you, you, it's, it's human nature to second guess yourself. Could I have? It's the wrong thing to do. If you do your job to the best of your ability, you follow your instincts, and you do what's right, mm. then you have to live with the consequence. It's it's hey, okay that happened. Let's move on, but um, that didn't happen. So,
0: well, I'm I'm really happy to hear that. And what's been the best parts of your job, and what's been the worst?
1: Oh wow, the best part of my job was helping victims of crime. Um, I think one of the most rewarding. Jobs was working in the sexual assault and child abuse unit. And I'll tell you why. At first, um, I really didn't have a a desire to work in that area. Mm. But I I had been a detective. And then I moved into the uniform branch again as a patrol sergeant. And I didn't like it. And the reason I moved uh, into the uniform branch from the detective office is because I had a conflict with an inspector of mine who wanted me to break the law and i told him that i would not and uh, he did not like me and he was one of the inspectors in charge of the division that i worked in and he could make my life miserable um he wanted a friend of his who had committed a terrible domestic violent act against his wife he wanted it to all go away and i said no it's not going away i've got the evidence and i'm going to put him away cool. yeah i had a target on my back and so I went back. I remember going back to my office on, on that particular day after having this, this uh, conversation with my inspector and just turning around and say, I will not do that. I went to my office and I was in charge of this detective office in, uh, in one uh, area. And I said, boys, I got to move. And I went into the uniform branch for about three or four years just to get rid of the target that I had on my back from this inspector. Yeah. But I, I didn't like it as a patrol sergeant. So my brother, who worked in the police department with me, he had worked for uh, the sexual assault and child abuse unit. And he says, "Paula, he says, I know you're trying to get back into the detective office, and so you'd like to get back. Have you considered working in this area?" And I said, "No, not really, but I think I'd be interested." He says, "You got it. You you got it. This fits your personality." So as luck would have it. There was one investigator in that office who wanted experience in the uniform branch. I wanted to get back into the detective branch. So we switched jobs and that was approved. When I got there, the stories that I heard were heartbreaking. And I knew that I could make a difference in these victims' lives. I was the first man that many of these victims came to. I'm very compassionate, I'm very understanding. I know how to connect and I know how to encourage. And I realized that some of the spoken words that I used were healing words for these girls and these women and even the guys, you know, like that were sexually molested or abused. Mm -hmm. And That gave me such joy, Nina. It gave me such joy to be able to help them to to realize that they still had power and control within them. It Mm. had just been displaced by some bad person. And what also gave me joy was catching the bad guy. That Mm. gave me such joy. You had
0: additional additional Mm. satisfaction of being able to do that.
1: Absolutely. And Mm. then I was great at getting uh, them to admit their crimes, which meant uh, that once they admitted their crimes that my my victims weren't uh, they were spared from having to testify in court because the statement was yeah. used against the criminals so it was great
0: yeah well, because you suffered um domestic violence you know we were in a domestic violence situation your father was very violent when you were growing up do you sometimes very get very empathetic when uh, when you were dealing with these children do you do you feel that you're very because i would probably feel so emotional being around them that I would almost take that pain from them I would feel the pain Um, I feel sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're in a similar situation or I know they've been in a situation I feel so heavy-hearted for them because I don't want them to feel that I want to spare them of that did you ever feel anything like that or did you just think right I'm going to create a solution for them
1: no, I felt that, you know, I, I, sort, I certainly did. I connected with them and I understood because I looked back at my background and, and I put myself in their shoes. What was also very powerful for me is that I used my story in, in some instances. Mm. I showed my vulnerability. I, I explained that I understood to a degree what they must be going through because when I was a child, And it's amazing when we share our stories with other people, how much it opens them up. I'll tell you about a case that uh, really, it's a a hard one to put your head around. But imagine two young boys from the ages of about, well, they were one and two. They were either tied to their beds, or they were locked in cages by their adoptive mother, who was the sister of their natural mother, who had died of a a drug overdose but this woman did not want to have anything to do with the boys she only wanted the money that the government was going to give for caring for the boys so she locked these children in cages for years they were only allowed to come out to go to school or maybe every once in a while they went out for for dinner but the mother she was this real big fat woman she was just a horrible individual horrible human being so they would go to a restaurant she had a plate of food in front of her and the boys had maybe one plate of french fries to share among themselves and she would eat like a beast and these boys that's the only life they knew was going from this t- tied in cribs where marks in a basement in a rural like this this rural township in a dirt basement with rock uh, walls around them And they were marked up. When it was time for them to go to school, this this evil woman, she realized that they couldn't go to school with uh, marks around their wrists because Mm -hmm. the teachers would question it. So she had a dog and the dog had a cage. And so she decided to get the boys dog cages to, um, to live in. And they would stay there sometimes for 12, 16 hours a day. They would be let go. And they were told, honor your mother and father. This was drilled into their heads. Now these, You, you know what it's like when you're told and you're fed a constant, yeah. yeah. They believed it. They could not talk about what was happening within the home. Mm. And so when they outgrew the cages, and I won't go into detail, it, it's just horrific. You can imagine other things that happened to these boys by this beast. And oh, I, I'm revisiting this. And I just remember when they got old enough to, they got bigger, and their their growth was stunted because she was also feeding them drugs that boys should not be given. And one of the one of the side effects of these drugs, after we had uh, gathered the drugs during our investigation, was that it never give to children could stunt their growth, could uh, impair their their reasoning, everything else like that. But when they outgrew the dog cages, they were put into baby cribs cribs, and there was a a top that was also placed on the baby cribs and they were locked up that way. But the boys never thought anything of it. This was their life. They were conditioned.
0: Yeah, that's all they knew.
1: Yeah, that's all they knew. So we found out about it. We rescued them and they were in their their cribs. When we rescued them, they were 12 and 14. Mm -hmm. Now I was given the job. Of seeing whether or not I could get them to disclose their story, to mm-hmm. tell us the depths of how deep this went. Now, you can imagine these boys were told never, ever mm-hmm. to disclose to anyone. It is a sin to disclose to anyone. And I remember talking to the boys individually. And one of the boys, of course, you know, he's, he's, his mom and his dad were locked up by the bad policeman. Where, where's my mom and where's my dad? And, you know, it it just broke my heart because this boy didn't understand the severity of which he was a a trauma victim. And I met with him about two or three times. And the only way that I got him to open up was by starting to share my story with him. And I really connected with this boy. And he absolutely loved me. At one point, he told me everything. And uh, it was such a joy to have him connect with me And the story is actually quite amazing because the the mother and father were charged. Of course, they went to jail Mm -hmm. and the boy, he started to reach out to me and contact me as he grew older. And he kept in in touch with me for years. And he said to me, he says, I want to be a policeman just like you, (sighs) detective Nadeau, just like you. And I knew that that could never happen because he had suffered uh, severely and not only emotionally, but his, his size had, had suffered and his mental capacity had suffered. But I said, you know what? What else could you do that would help other people? If you couldn't be a detective, what could you be? He became an advocate against child abuse by going to schools and sharing his story. How great is that? And uh, I lost touch with him, regrettably but he ended up doing a great service for a lot of people going Isn't
0: back. It's amazing that one person can change the whole outlook for another person when they've been through this abuse. Just that one smile, just that one, just that one person being kind. And it sounds like many a time you would have touched people in this way. I know that it was a job that you were doing, but I sense it was a lot more than just the job for you.
1: It was a lot, and that's a very good question, excellent question. You're right. It was more of a job. I didn't look at it as being a job. Mm-hmm. I looked at it as being a service, and I like to serve people and I like to help people out of their uh, their situations and to get them back uh, you know to, to living the life that they deserve to live. And when that happened, it it brought joy to my heart. and it was really therapy for me, too. You know, just knowing that I could connect with other human beings. Even criminals, I got to tell you, I made friends with criminals. I connected with criminals. A lot of people look at a criminal and they say, once bad, always bad. Hell no, that's not true. Once bad, always bad. We label people, hey, you're this, you're that. You'll never amount to anything. You're of this religion. You're of that sexual orientation. You're this, you're that. I don't like you. Well, criminals are labeled that way too. Hey, you committed a crime. You're a horrific person. You'll never be good. That's not true. I walked in to talk to murderers and rapists and child molesters, and I got them to open up and to tell me about the crimes that they had committed. And I remember my um, my coworkers, the detectives would go, how do you do that, Paul? How do you do that? And here's my answer. I am not walking into a room to talk to a murderer. I'm walking into a room to talk to a human being mm-hmm. because that human being, deserves to be heard, seen, understood. And when I make a connection with that human being, when they know me, like me, and trust me, that's when I can ask them, let's talk about what you've been accused of. But I would walk into a room, and I did this in the Middle East too. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But when I walked into a room to talk to a criminal, no matter what they had done, is I would say this. I'd say, my name is Paul. Please call me Paul. May I call you by your first name? I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to find you guilty of anything. I'm only here to determine the truth. Right now, I don't know what that truth is. I've read the reports. I've heard what other people are saying about you. But I have absolutely no idea if this is actually you or if there's something inside you, you know, that, that, that needs to be told. Your story needs to be told. I'm here to find that out. And I'm here to treat you with dignity and with respect. And I would expect the same in return. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. And then I would try to connect with the person. Mm. Uh, Not by disclosing my past at first, of course not. Just by making a connection. What is it that we share in common? You know, like, did you you see the game last night? Mm -hmm. You know, you have children. I have children. Just making that small talk and getting people to realize that you're not there to hit them. You're not there to put them down. You're just here to find out who they are and to share a moment with them and to connect. And it was
0: sorry. No, you have such an amazing personality, such an amazing outlook. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people. I'm 51 years old, so I speak to I've spoken to lots of people in my life, but you have a very rare quality where you're able to look at life almost from the other person's point of view, which I try to do and I try my best but I feel you're <laughs> so much more further in front of me with experience because you're, you're there, you know, that you don't judge somebody by what you've been told they are. You look at them as a person and you want to hear them for who they are. And I just want to say that's an amazing thing. Thank
1: you, Nina. Um, that attitude saved my life more than once. It saved my life in the Middle East when I was being attacked and almost killed by a number of terrorists. It was a terrorist who saved my life.
0: Really? And
1: yes, it was a terrorist who saved my life. I did my TED talk on that uh, on that point and um, truly an amazing story. But yes, I two lessons that I learned very early on my career in my career that really I, I I'm blessed that I learned them and they have served me well. The first lesson that I learned is that we are more similar than we are different Meaning that we are all human beings, imperfect people living in an imperfect world. We all laugh, love, and bleed in the same way. We have relationships. We think alike. We talk alike. Maybe a little bit different because of culture and and beliefs and such like that. But for the core of us, we are more similar than we are different. And so that really translates to just we're human beings. We're on this planet together we're all equals. So that was one of the first lessons that I learned. The other one was a very simple lesson that uh, is a principle in all religions, but people tend to forget. You get what you give. If I give someone a finger, if I'm walking down the street and I give someone the finger,
0: they're
1: they're likely to give me the finger back. If I give them the smile, they're likely to give me the smile back.
0: Yeah.
1: And if I treat criminals, uh, people, whoever, with dignity and respect, I'm likely to get that in return. And I'm living proof. I'm alive here today because a a terrorist saved my life. And that was because of the way that I had treated him on an earlier occasion, not knowing that he was a a terrorist, but that doesn't matter. I treated everybody in the same way. And uh, I treated him with dignity and respect. And when he saw that I was being attacked and almost killed, He put a stop to that attack. He saved my partner and I with the biggest smile on his face. He picked me up, he shook me off, and he said, It's time for you to go. And uh, I'm here because of him.
0: That's amazing. That's just so amazing. Have you just changed the subject slightly? um, I feel like I've known you for ages. You probably get that a lot, don't you? That people say, Yeah, it's just you have that personality. But have you ever had a family where you, you negotiated something or you know, it's been a really difficult situation and the family have turned against you or they've tried to give you more or are they separated from when you're doing the negotiations?
1: Never have. No, I never have. I've never had that uh, experience that I can think of right off the top of my head. Mm. I've dealt with with families, uh, of course, uh, in very, um, very tense situations. And um, I've always been a peacekeeper. And I think it's the way in which we we just treat each other, you know, and it's your body language, it's your yeah. tone of voice, it's the words that you say, and it's hard to stay angry or upset or distant from someone who allows you to open up and, and tell you their experiences and they tend to understand you so no i haven't
0: i feel like your energy is very um it's a great energy and that comes across before you do you know as soon as we before anybody will watch this we spoke for a couple of minutes and you were just straight there you know you you were so relaxed and and we've both conversed and we've never spoken before in person or Mm -hmm. even off you know we've never really spoken apart from the texting and the messages so you just have this amazing personality, and it really calms the other person down. And I get that people say to me, "Oh, you're really calming," but mm. you're on a totally different level. I have to say, I love that about you. Um, before we end this, is there anything that you want to say that you know, in in conjunction with my whole essence of being for this controversial thing, where people are allowed to say whatever they want? There's no bars here. You know, anything you've never been allowed to express. Is there anything that you want to say to anybody else that's watching this, that if they've been told they can't do something, or if they're trying to work out why somebody is a certain way, with your experience, just to give them a couple of hints of how they can understand another person that they really are struggling to understand.
1: I certainly do. I have a couple of things. I'll start off with that, and then I'm gonna focus on you and the work that you're doing because I think that what you're doing is extraordinary. You've got a TED talk that you're going to be preparing for on a very important topic. But let's start out with um, how people can connect with other people. Again, those two lessons that I learned, I want you to really take them to heart. Remember that the person sitting across from you is more similar to you than they are different. They are human beings just like you, and they have fears and experiences. They may have suffered abuse. You have no idea what they have walked through, what shoes they wore. Maybe some of them didn't wear shoes. When you show compassion and understanding that they are your equal, then you can open doors. Leonard Cohen, a Canadian songwriter and singer, he wrote the the classic Hallelujah. We all love that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, Leonard Cohen. He wrote a song back in the 1990s called Anthem. And there's a lyric in that song that I absolutely love. And I've used this in my keynote talks. And the lyric is this. There is a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. Now let's just say that over again. Mm -hmm. There's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. We have all suffered our cracks. And some of us have suffered our breaks. Mm -hmm. Some of us are not healed yet. But within each and every person, we have a light. And that light can shine into the cracks of others. So there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. Be the light. Be the light to get into the cracks of others. Be the light that is non-judgmental, regardless of race, color, religion, um, sexual orientation. Guess what, folks? We're all trying to make it through this life together. Let's work together. Let's remember that we are brothers and sisters. and In doing so, let's unite. Let's help each other because life isn't easy for a lot of people out there. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. Shine your light into the cracks of others. Be a healing source of energy for them. And in doing so, when you give, you're going to get, which brings me to my second point. We get what we give. If you give life and love, you're going to get life and love. When you really, truly treat people, the way that you wanna be treated, it's amazing what you're gonna get in return. It saved my life. It saved me from beatings, that in itself. So follow those two principles. I challenge you to look at life differently. If you haven't been looking at it that way, it's time for you to change. It's your responsibility to be a source of help in this world. We're not born into pods, we're born into families. We're meant to depend on one another. Have someone depend on you be that person that that says hey your journey is hard how can i take part of your load because tomorrow i may ask you nina take part of my load i can't do this i'm having a hard time please take part of my load the other thing i want to turn around is just applaud you for what you are doing nina you are bringing honor killings to the forefront to bring awareness to people that things have to change and that everyone has a right to be here. Honor our women. They are our source of life. Without them, we would not be here. We are so equal again, and I just applaud you. And I I really appreciate having spent some time here with you, getting to know you more. So I applaud you in what you're doing.
0: You're just so lovely. I wish I could just hug you I want to hug
1: everyone. <laughs> a I virtual hug I'm, goes out.
0: Emotional. <laughs> no, um, you're just such an amazing person. I'm just so blessed that we have crossed paths. And I do believe that we cross paths with people for a reason. I was fascinated at what I've read about you. I was fascinated with your podcasts. And for those of you listening, Paul has the most amazing podcasts that leave you feeling like you can do anything and today I feel again more inspired than I've ever felt that I'm here for a reason and I am on the right track you know you've given me confirmation I'm on the right track the way that I am sometimes people say I'm too gentle in my approach but this is my personality I don't want to be anybody but who I am and often the way you describe the cracks and the light comes through you know everything's so beautiful. the way you've done it is also very beautiful and I resonate with a lot of the things that you have said and I'm just, I think the listeners will take away so, so much today and if they don't feel inspired, then something's wrong with them because (laughs) being being here in your space, I'll call it, has left me just wanting to carry on with what I'm doing and I just feel blessed.
1: Thank you so much for having me Jan. It's been an absolute joy and I'm so glad that we got to see each other face to face off clubhouse put a face to it put the voice you know to the face and it's
0: absolutely great yeah absolutely now if anybody wants to find out more about paul i will put his links down when i get around to it still learning the whole podcast thing but i just love i'm actually loving just hanging out with these amazing people that i keep coming across so um i will say bye and as i said paul's information will be available for you at some point thank you so much paul thank you very much nina